Well, you know what? Every once in a while in life, we take on a new task and sometimes we set some goals. And sometimes we reach a point where we're ready to just throw in the towel. You know what throw in the towel means. When there's a boxing match and one of the boxers is beating the other one up so bad that the coaches, they throw in a towel and says, hey, we give up, we quit, it's over, uncle, give up. Sometimes we get tired, sometimes we get frustrated, sometimes we get exhausted, and sometimes we feel like there is no use to uh, continuing to try. You know, sometimes we're scared, whether it's looking for a job or a relationship, Maybe we are scared of some health-related problems that we're facing. For some of us, maybe it's school and all the anxiety that comes, especially towards the end of the school year. Trying to lose weight or trying to start that new business that's been birthed on the inside of you. We experience many, many barriers and we experience a lot of obstacles and we sometimes just don't see any light at the end of the tunnel. And so we just rather just quit and give up the fight have you ever been like that before? Even when a person is attempting to complete the work of the Lord, you know, there could be many problems and there can be many obstacles and strong opposition for the task at hand. I'll give you an example. It seems like for the past two years with basketball camp, as it relates to finding a venue for basketball camp. It seems like we always get strong opposition for that outreach ministry. Last year, uh, we did our due diligence, sending emails and you know, making phone calls and you know, trying to get everything lined up. And we're thinking everything is okay because the response that we're getting is, hey, everything is okay, everything is fine, everything is fine. And up to the day of camp, everything is not fine. <laughs> We don't know what you're talking about. We don't have a contract. We don't have this. And the building is in disrepair. The gym is not even ready on the day of. Seems like there was some opposition there going on. But God was in the midst and basketball camp was going, went forth. This year, 2015, we decided not to go through that again. So we decided to, we find another venue. We submitted all the paperwork and We've done everything we're supposed to do, background check and everything, you know, the preliminary one. And we're trying to do our due diligence and phone call. Everything is okay. Everything is okay. Three weeks later, everything is fine. We're still waiting. You haven't got anything in the mail yet? Oh, everything is fine. Now it gets to the point where we lost all your information. And the process now is at the point that if we submit it again, then we probably won't get anything back in time for you to have your basketball camp. Opposition. Today we're going to look into the Word of God and observe how a leader by the name of Nehemiah, who took on the task of planning and leading in the rebuilding of Jerusalem's walls while facing a series of strong opposition. Will you turn with me to the book of Nehemiah, chapter 4. We're going to learn how this leader, with the wisdom of God, handled obstacles. We're going to be moving forward with the work of the Lord 
while facing obstacles. Nehemiah chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. I'll read for you. Now when Sanballat heard that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged. And he jeered the Jews. And he said in the presence of his brothers and of the army of Samaria, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burn ones at that? Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him. And he said, yes, what are they building? If a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. Hear, O uh, hear our God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight. For they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. Verse 6. So we built the wall and all the wall was joined together to half its height. For the people had a mind to work. But when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forth and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry. And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. And we prayed to our God and set a guard as a protection against them day and night. In Judah, it was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There is too much rubble. By ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. And our enemies said, they will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. At that time, the Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said to us 10 times, you must return to us. Verse 13. So in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall, I, in open places, I stationed the people by their clans with their swords, their spears, and their bows. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight your brothers, fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. So Nehemiah's story, it shows that many times when we're trying to accomplish anything significant for the Lord, you will face strong opposition. One of the things I kind of noticed in life is that Satan never really bothers the half-hearted person when it comes to doing things for the Lord. Those who are content with the, you know, the whole hum spiritual existence, you know. But if you come on fire for Christ, look out, opposition will come. The name Satan, his very name is, itself means adversary, an enemy. He is committed to opposing God and his people. That's us especially when they are excited and on fire for God's glory. So this is true on a personal level if we think about it. 
you know, as long as we live with one foot on the world and the other one uh, uh, in the church and, and, and we're submitting and we're adhering to the world's ways of doing things and values, Satan won't trouble us too much. You can go to church, you can pray, you can even read your Bible. He won't mind. But the minute we wake up out of our spiritual laziness and we shake off that worldly mindset and the, and the, and the world's way of doing things, and we commit ourselves to a radical obedience to Christ, to be what we call all in in our Sunday school, we will encounter spiritual opposition. This also applies to church leaders and churches. You know, whenever godly leaders, when they attempt to rally God's people together to advance his kingdom, kingdom opposition, it will hit. Satan doesn't mind when churches gather together and sing and hear the soothing sermons about how to use the Bible to achieve personal success, to use God kind of like as a spiritual uh, slot machine. Those churches are no threat to his domain. But when a pastor preaches and the gospel that convicts sinners of their sins in the presence of a holy God and he points them to Jesus Christ, look out. Opposition is coming. When a pastor calls the flock to fast and to pray and to intercede for those, the enemy will come. We need to look out because opposition is coming. The enemy is committed to thwarting the work of the church. We need to be ready for such opposition, and we need to know how to respond to it. And in this passage of scripture, Nehemiah chapter 4, is going to teach us how to respond to various types of opposition. So when the enemy opposes us, and we know that he surely will, we should respond with these. And you may want to write it down. We should respond with number one, prayer. Number two, determination. Number three, vigilance. Number four, Focus on the Lord. Now, if we only had chapter 3, when I first read it, it looks like they had completed the wall. It goes on to say that so-and-so's son built this part of the wall, and so-and-so built this part of the wall, and so-and-so built, past tense, this part of the wall. And it says, and so we built the wall. And it seems like they built the wall without any opposition when we read chapter 3. But that was not the case. It never is. Chapters 4 through 6 shows us that problems, the problems that Nehemiah had to overcome. There's like a cycle of advance and setback. Advance and setback. We know how it is in life. You know, sometimes we, we get ourselves together and we, we shake it off and we pray and, and we do all that we can and it seems like there's something that kind of sets us back. We lose focus. And so this shows the cycle in the Christian life in Nehemiah chapter 3 through 6, how they made advances and set back. The enemy would try to get us sidetracked and just to give up completely, even though it was God's will for the wall to, rebuilt, to be rebuilt. One of the things I noticed is that God didn't remove the opposition. Even though it was God's will for you to go strong in the faith, he does not necessarily remove the opposition. If we respond properly, 
the opposition will drive us closer with a greater dependence on the Lord and a greater determination to do what he has called us to do. But if we yield to the opposition, we'll quit this race in discouragement and we'll settle for mediocrity and have a lot of missed opportunities in God. So one of the first defense against the enemy is to be aware of the kinds of opposition that he uses. We'll look first at some of the various forms of opposition that, and, and how it takes place and how we're supposed to respond. Number one, the enemy will use the angers of others against you. He will use the angers of others against you. Sambalat, the governor's mayor, he became, look at what it said in verse 1, 4 of Jones. It said he became very angry. He became greatly enraged. When looking up that word, it seems, it seems like it's given us the symbol of being what they call burning mad. He was mad. A secure and independent Jerusalem would threaten his hold on the whole area. And so therefore, he was very angry. It, it threatened what his agenda was. And in anger over what Nehemiah was doing, they all came together threatening to stop the work of violence if necessary. This new work of God in Jerusalem threatened their lifestyle and so that they got very angry. So Satan uses the angers of others to squelch the newfound joy, let's say, of a new believer. I used to be a part of a, uh, a ministry uh, many years ago where the ministry seemed to really draw a lot of teens and youth. And one of the things that I noticed is that when a new teen or young adult, when they came to Christ, many of the parents who were not believers, they became enraged with the children. Who do you think you are joining that church? You think you're better than us? And I, see, I saw a pattern how these children that were on fire for Christ, the people whom they lived in the house with, the very people who were supposed to love them, they became enraged and began to even throw thoughts of attacks at the ministry itself. And so therefore, the enemy uses the angers of others many times to thwart the work. You know, a lot of times you begin to, you may decide that you want to start a Bible study somewhere and, and, and in the community. There are going to be some people that's going to be angry with you. They're going to be enraged. Who do they think they are starting a Bible study in our library? And the enemy uses that as a way of discouragement to you. So why are they mad? You know, you, you think that the child that had came to Christ, you think that, they, the, that the parent will be happy, that they're not walking around in the streets and, and using violence and things of that nature. And that's because the enemy will use the angers of others as an obstacle. Along with that anger, many times what they call mockery and sarcasm, Sambalot and his crew, they were gathering in, in the distance of the wall, and they used sarcasm. They said this, what are these feeble Jews doing? Are they going to restore it for themselves? Can they offer sacrifices? He means this, he, do they think that they can complete this project and offer sacrifices of thanksgiving? Can they finish in, in a day? You know how people do. When you're trying to do stuff for the Lord, they get sarcastic with you. Where's your God at now? Oh, you, you was praying, I, I remember you was praying for something. Oh, where is he at now? It doesn't seem like 
he came through for you, did he? And a lot of times we, we'll use those, uh, those oppositions to kind of second guess what we're called to do. Sarcasm. Even our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, he was not exempt from mockery and sarcasm. You turn with me to Luke chapter 23. Luke chapter 23, verse 22. And it goes as this. It says, two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to, to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and the other on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching both the rulers, both the rulers scoffed at him, saying, he saved others, let him save himself. If he is the Christ of God, his chosen one, the soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine, saying, if you are king of the Jews, save yourself. Our Lord and Savior Jesus was, was, was not exempt from mockery and sarcasm. And so when we go forth to do the work of the Lord, we can expect sarcasm. We can expect to be mocked. We can, be, we, can be, we, we can expect to be ridiculed. So Satan frequently uses these, these ridicules against those who take a stand for the Lord. If you become a Christian and let it be known, you know how maybe sometimes though your fellow workers will mock you. And I remember back in the day they used to call us holy rollers. Oh, you're one of those holy rollers, aren't you? Yeah, I see how sometimes you pray before you take your lunch. You're one of those holy rollers, aren't you? You know, and they mock us. Next thing, a lot of times that happen to try to thwart the work of the Lord is intimidation. If anger and ridicule doesn't work, the enemy sometimes gets a little bit more aggressive. Intimidation or threats of violence is often sometimes an effective tool for the enemy. The opponents of God, in this case, use this tool against the Jews who were living close to them. They use mockery. Let's look at verse 8 in Nehemiah chapter 4. And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. We can look at the world today the enemy, they're not threatening violence anymore. They're committing violence. Just look at all of the different uh, Asians, in, uh, I mean, all of the different uh, continents in the Middle East. We have ISIS, and we have all these different groups. They're, they're not threatening violence. They're committing violence. And a lot of times, the enemy, with just the threat of violence, kind of paralyzes us sometimes. You know, maybe if we start this group in this Muslim neighborhood, maybe we may be the subject of violence. I know that God called me to do it, but man, they're getting more bolder and bolder every day. And they use threats of violence or intimidation. 
Satan sometimes uses it more subtle, or threats of intimidation. You know, maybe if you don't keep quiet about your boss's corruption at work, if you don't keep quiet about it, you lose your job. Or maybe if we discipline our child in a godly way, maybe DCFS will come and take your child away. Threats of intimidation. There's, there's a lot of things that the enemy uses to kind of paralyze us from doing the things that we're called to do. I read an article about a church in Phoenix, Arizona, and they had a powerful attorney in their board of, uh, board of elders. And this powerful attorney became soon found out that he was having an affair. And so the church decided to uh, ask this powerful attorney to step down. And out of anger and out of intimidation, the lawyers tells him this, if I have to step down, everybody has to step down. And one of the sad facts that actually did happen is that they did succumb to the intimidation of that lawyer and all of the elder boards, they stepped down. They had succumbed to the threat of intimidation. Another one of the things that we may face when we're trying to do the work of the Lord is discouragement and exhaustion. We've all experienced discouragement in our lives. We've all been exhausted when trying to complete a task. Apparently, there was a discouraging type of proverb that Nehemiah lists, uh, lists here in chapter 4, verse 10. It says this, The strength of the burden bearers is failing, yet there is much rubbish, and we ourselves are unable to rebuild the wall. The people, they were wearing out. The piles of rubbish, it seemed like it wasn't diminishing. You, have you been like that when you started a task before? You're doing it, you're doing it, doing it, and you kind of look back and you say, man, it looks like I haven't gotten anywhere. Whether it be cleaning your house or trying to witness to people, or whatever the case may be, a lot of times you become discouraged. A lot of times we become exhausted. And they weren't exempt either. They looked at the task at hand, and one of the things that I noticed is that they made it to the halfway point. And a lot of times the enemy knows that once you get to the halfway point, it's like smooth sailing. It's like you see light at the end of the tunnel. A lot of people, where did, the, you know, where did hump day come from? Because it seemed like you made it over the hump, and everyone's excited on Wednesdays, right? And they get excited because they can kind of see light at the end. Of, you know, that Friday is getting here. So a lot of times when we're in the midst of our work, the enemy, right when we get to the halfway point, he'll use exhaustion. He'll use discouragement to try to thwart the work of ministry. Satan knows that at the halfway point in any work is almost the most effective time to strike. When a new project begins, there is plenty of momentum and enthusiasm, right? And it says, let's go, let's arise and build. And, and sometimes it gets stuttered a little bit, and then it gets to the halfway point. And it's like once you get to the halfway point, you can see the progress, boom. A lot of times, that's where the opposition occurs. The same thing is true in our walk with God. You know how it happens for many of what happened to many of us or other people that we witnessed to. We first get on fire for the Lord. It's exciting. We're on fire. We're going to work for the Lord. We're going to save the world. We're going to travel across the world. We're going to catch a bus and get on the corner. And, you know, and every Bible study we're going to go to, it seems fresh. It seems like fresh raiment from heaven. Your times in the word and prayer are rich with new discoveries. You just can't get enough of it. 
But somewhere down the line, the newness, sometimes it wears off. You begin to notice the piles of rubbish in our own life. And sometimes we look at it in the church and problems and sins that just don't seem to go away. You begin to grow weary. You begin to start wondering if all your efforts are making any difference for the cause of Christ. Sometimes our weariness leads to discouragement. But guess what? Satan is not out of tools. He uses another tactic called fear. Fear is kind of like the cumulative effect of all the above factors. The people had seen the enemy's anger. They had heard their mockery and their threats, and they were wearing down through exhaustion. Then they repeatedly heard the gloom and doom from their fellow Jews who lived near to the enemy. Nehemiah, he saw their fear, and then he exhorted them to not be afraid. And so one of the things we notice is that Satan, he uses fear to paralyze God's people, to keep them from attempting anything significant for the Lord. Maybe it's our fear of failure itself. Maybe just because you've never done it before and you don't know if you can do it. Maybe it's the fear of rejection. If you try it, others will think you're a fanatic and they'll kind of be standoffish from you. Or maybe it's just a fear of conflict. If you don't do what God wants you to do, you know that they'll catch flat, so you back off. So these are just some of the tactics that Satan uses to oppose his God's work, both in projects that people undertake in advance of the Lord's work and in each of our hearts when we want to advance spiritually. So how should we oppose such or respond to such opposition? Number one, respond to the enemy's opposition with prayer. Whenever we encounter opposition, we have several options. We can either run from it, it's real easy to do that, isn't it? You can try to dodge or go around it. You can try to work out a compromise, or you can meet it head on and work through it. The last approach is usually the only biblical way. Nehemiah's approach can be broken down into these aspects. They lifted up their voices in prayer. They put their heart into the work. They kept their eyes on the enemy in vigilance, and they kept their minds focused on the Lord in faith. So they lifted up their voices in prayer. Often when we face opposition, our first response is to get angry and hit back or to defend ourselves. But our first response should always be prayer. A lot of times, prayer is our plan B instead of our plan A. I'll say that again. A lot of times, prayer is our plan B instead of our plan A. We should seek the Lord first. There's dire consequences for putting prayer as a backup plan. Turn with me to 1 Chronicles chapter 10. 1 Chronicles chapter 10, verse 13. Listen what happened to Saul. We didn't use prayer as his plan A. First Chronicles chapter 10, verse 13. I want you to follow along with me with this one. Here we go. So Paul died for his breach of faith. He broke faith with the Lord 
in that he did not keep the command of the Lord and also consulted a medium seeking guidance. He did not seek guidance from the Lord. Therefore, the Lord put him to death and turned the kingdom over to David, the son of Jesse. Saul did not put prayer, or he did not consult God first. I even had to do some self-reflecting when it came to basketball camp. Myself, yes I did. I had in my own mind where I wanted to have basketball camp this year. And it seems like opposition and opposition and opposition was coming at even way. No matter how hard I tried, I tried using influence from this person. I tried using influence from this one. I, you hear the key word, right? I kept on trying to figure out ways to, to kind of break through this barrier. So I, I know this is for the Lord to do, so I need to do what I have to do. But it seems like when I prayed and sought the Lord for direction, it seems like God was like, okay, this is what needs to happen. And so therefore, this door was closed and another door was opened. And that didn't happen until I sought out the Lord first. Well, in this case, I didn't seek it out first, but once I did do that and came to my senses, then it seemed like certain obstacles weren't so much of a barrier anymore. So that's what they did. Nehemiah, they lifted up their voices in prayer. That should always be our first response. Prayer reminds us that God is sovereign, even over those who are attacking us. He has allowed this trial for a reason, and in prayer we submit our hearts to him and acknowledge or trust him. But what about Nehemiah's prayer in chapter 4, verses 4 and 5? What about that prayer? Listen to this prayer of Nehemiah. He says this, Hear, O our God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt and do not let their sin be blotted out from your sight. For they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. And one of the things when I read that, I was like, man, Nehemiah, he's praying against them, boy. He, he, he won't God to lay it on them. Then I was like, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. I thought about how Jesus told us to pray. Jesus said this. He says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So then I was like, wow, I'm faced with a dilemma here because I like that prayer that Nehemiah had. It's easy to do that. You know how we get sometimes when somebody offends us or somebody really made us ask, Lord, strike them down. Get him. It's easy to do that. Kind of reminds me of my grandfather. Uh, he used to have this thing. He said, when I get to heaven, he says, I want to be the one that sit and wait on God to say, you know, he read to throw the lightning bolts at people. He used to say, I want to be that one that throw them, you know. It's kind of easy for us, you know, to want to do that, you know. But God says, vengeance is mine. So how do we handle this? So should we pray as Nehemiah prays? So I was like, man, how do I deal with this? But I don't want to take them too much time in this. But I'll be quick. First, this is not a prayer for personal vengeance. It's not. We really study and look at it. But rather, it is a prayer that God would act to judge sinners. Second, since these en enemies, they were hindering God's work, it was a prayer that God would judge those who would pose 
his kingdom and his glory. So as Christians, we should pray that God would destroy our enemies by converting them. But if he so chooses, God may also destroy them by pouring out his wrath on them. It is his choice. As he will surely do at the final judgment if they have not repented of their rebellion against him. So this is what we need to do. We need to guard our hearts against any selfish motives or personal delight. God would subdue the enemies of the cross either by conversion or by his justice. So prayer should be our first response to the opposition. Next thing I noticed that they did is they put their hearts into their work. They put their hearts into the work that was at hand. Verse 6 says this, So we built the wall, and all the wall was joined together, to half its height, for the people, they had a mind to work. So although there was a slight pause while Nehemiah, when he organized, they didn't abandon the work to chase down the enemy. They didn't allow the enemy's threat to get their focus on, onto other issues. They just kept building the wall, and pretty soon the enemy was outside looking up instead of looking across at them. Next thing, they kept their eyes on the enemy in vigilance. They kept their eyes on the enemy in vigilance. So Nehemiah, he prayed first, but then after he did that, he set up a guard. There's this, there's this term that they call, it says, trust God and keep your powder dry. There was this general, his name was uh, Christian, uh, general, his name was Oliver Cromwell. He says, look, I'm trusting God, but I want to keep the powder dry. We're going to be vigilant. It is resonant upon the Lord, but we're going to do our part. So also notice that Nehemiah's prayer, it didn't make the enemy go away. Instead, the enemy, he upped up his threats to attack. Prayer doesn't mean that you can ignore the enemy's threats. We don't just ignore the threats or pretend that they don't exist. So Nehemiah, he was vigilant to arm the workers and to post guards around the clock. Also, he put in place a warning system so that whenever the trumpet was blown, where you at, Orbert? <laughs> The workers would quickly rally there to defend their families in the city. The workers didn't take off their clothes at night so that they would be ready to defend the city. Vigilance. So if there was a, a report that came to the church and they said, hey, hey, Sister, uh, Sister Dolores, there's a lion outside. And there's a reporter that, he, that he's escaped and he's in the area. So yes, we're going to pray, but yes, at the same time, we're going to be vigilant, aren't we? We're going to pray, and we're just not going to let our children just go outside and run around. That's vigilance. We pray knowing that everything, uh, God is in control of everything. Yet many Christians, we're obvious, we're oblivious to the dangers of the enemy. We kind of forget that the enemy, he seeks to devour those. They go out into the world without putting on the full armor of God. A lot of times we hang out maybe with worldly friends and, and we, fill up their, uh, we fill up our minds with all the different mess that we see in Hollywood. We have to set up a defense against a lot of the things that we're vulnerable to. We need to block the opportunities for moral filth from our lives and in our home and spend day each day 
saturate our mind with God's word. We need to put an accountability in place sometimes. You know what that means, that we have a brother or a sister to kind of keep, keep us grounded. We're being vigilant. Yes, we pray, but yet we set up these safeguards, just like Nehemiah did. He prayed, but he set up safeguards. And when we set, go out to do a task, we have to set these safeguards in place. So Nehemiah and his people responded to the enemy's opposition by one, lifting up their voices in prayer. They put their hearts into their work and by vigilantly keeping their eyes on the enemy. Final thing, they kept their minds focused on the Lord. They kept their minds focused on the Lord. Nehemiah reminded them in verse 14. He says, and I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, he says this, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. They kept their minds, I mean, they remembered and they focused on the Lord. The people were discouraged because they had gotten uh, they gotten their focus on the enemy's threats and the piles of rubber. But when they, put, when they remembered what the Lord had did, they were able to focus on the task at hand. And this is not the first time that it happened. God even reminds us to remember him of former victories. Turn to me with Deuteronomy chapter 8. We have to see this. Deuteronomy chapter 8, beginning at verse 1. This is God talking to the children of Israel. The whole commandment that I commanded you today, you should be careful to do that you may live and multiply and to, go and, to, and to go in and possess the land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let your hunger be fed, be hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. And so the guy says, look, remember the Lord. Remember how I brought you out of Egypt. Remember how I fed your, your fathers in the wilderness from manna from which they didn't even know where it came from. Remember how I delivered you out of the hand of Pharaoh. We have to remember former victories. A lot of you know that uh, uh, my father has a, has a business that has been under, I would say, attack from the city of Chicago for many, many, many years. And this last fight right here, it seemed like nothing happened. And my dad was really stressing out. He's like, man, I don't know what I'm going to do. They keep sending me these court letters. And, and you know what? I said, dad, you know what? Just stop. Let's pray. We're going to continue on with the work. But you know what? We've experienced this before. I said, remember how 10 years ago they threw it out of court and our lawyers didn't even know why. Remember how just a, a few years before that, they, the Lord just threw it out of court and we didn't have no lawyers. And it seemed like once we started remembering the formal victories and we still kept on doing our due diligence, it seemed like the Lord just opened up and removed the opposition. And to this very day, 
the city of Chicago, according to our attorneys, they said they threw it out, it's dismissed, and they don't even know why. Remember the Lord in your form of victories. There was this historian, his name was Will Durant, and he said, and he said this. He said, Rome remained great as long as she had enemies who forced her to unity, vision, and heroism. When she had overcome all her enemies, she flourished for a moment and then began to die. So it appears that opposition kept Rome strong. As long as everything was going fine, I mean, I'm sorry, as long as they were experiencing a battle here, a front here, we had to go, we had to deal with this, we had to fend off here, we got problems here, we got to deal with that. As long as they faced opposition, it seemed like Rome grew. And I know I'm not telling us to embrace opposition, but I believe that God and his divine sovereign will sometimes allow us to face opposition sometimes, to make us stronger, to make us remember him in our form of victory, to remember what he has done, to draw us closer and to rely on him. If we know Christ and try to accomplish anything for him, just know this, we will face opposition. We need to respond as Nehemiah did, with prayer, keeping on with the work, vigilance, and keeping our focus on the great and awesome God in whom we serve. And so my brothers and sisters, whenever we embrace a task and do the work of the Lord, we should just prepare our minds and our hearts that there's there are going to be obstacles. Of course, we want everything to go smooth. We do all the planning. We do all the best that we can. But this book, Nehemiah, through God's word, we, we learn how to face the enemy. And each one of these things involved the Lord. There may be someone here today that says, you know what? That sounds really good. But I don't know the Lord. I don't know much about former victories. I, 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 don't, I, I can't see it. I think there are a lot of us here today who are believers in Christ who can testify that the Lord has done great and marvelous things in our lives. If the Lord has done great and marvelous things in your life, I'm doing this for a purpose, if he has done, raise your hand. For those of you who may not be a believer in Christ, keep your hands up. Keep your hands up. For those of you who may not be a believer in Christ, look around. The book of Hebrews says that we have such a great cloud of witnesses in heaven. But I tell you right now, we have such a great cloud of witnesses right here in this sanctuary. And if that is you, we want to pray with you. If you want to be a part of that great cloud of witnesses that are in heaven and that are here with us today, 